Volume Three, Chapter Four of Celestina. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Amy McCracken. Celestina, by Charlotte Turner Smith, Volume Three, Chapter Four. As Mrs. Elphinstone was too much dejected to allow her to go out, Celestina, who had great pleasure in visiting antiquities, and whose active mind was perpetually in search of new ideas, was compelled either to relinquish these gratifications, or to permit Montague Thorold only to accompany her. He was generally so guarded in his conversation, that, though it was easy to see how much he suffered in suppressing his passion, Celestina had no reasonable ground of complaint. He found, however, at Edinburgh, that it was particularly uneasy to her to visit the places she wished to see without some other companion, and recollecting that one of the professors was well known to his father, he made use of the claim that acquaintance gave him, and by that means Celestina received all the attention and hospitality for which the Scottish nation are so justly praised. The gentleman to whom she thus became known had several daughters, amiable and elegant young women. With them she saw all that the capital of Scotland afforded worthy of observation. With them she visited the ruinous chapel and magnificently mournful apartments of Holyrood House, and gave a sigh to the fate of the lovely, luckless Mary, who was almost his last resident sovereign. Then, parting with her newly acquired friends with mutual regret, she proceeded on her road to England, nothing particular occurring on the way for some time, except the slow but evident amendment of Mrs. Elphinstone's spirits, and the symptoms of increased attachment to Montague Thorold, who, if he loved her before with an attachment fatal to his peace and subversive of his prospects, now seemed to idolize her with an ardor bordering on frenzy. In despite of the resolution she had avowed to him, in despite of those he had himself formed, this ardent and invincible passion was visible in everything he said and did. He seemed to have forgotten that he had any other business in the world than to serve her, to listen to the enchantment of her voice, to watch every change of her countenance. His whole being was absorbed in that one sentiment, and though he had promised not to consider the advantages which his own wild Quixotism, aided by accident, had thus obtained for him, as making the least alteration in the decided preference of Celestina for another, he insensibly forgot, at least at times, her unalterable affection for Willoughby, and seeing, notwithstanding all her attempts to conceal it, that she pitied him, that she was not insensible of his attempts to please her, nor blind to his powers of pleasing, he cherished, in defiance of reason and conviction, from which he fled as much as possible, the extravagant hope that the barrier, whatever it was, between her and Willoughby, would be found invincible, and that the time, though it might yet be remote, would at length arrive when he should himself be allowed to aspire to her favour. The human mind, however strong, yields too easily to these illusions, whence at least it enjoys the soft consolations of hope, and sees rays of light which, though imaginary, perhaps are all we often have to carry us on, with courage, over the rugged way, too thickly sown with real or missing them with imaginary and self-created evils. It is therefore little to be wondered at, if Montague Thorold, so sanguine in temperament, of so little experience in life, for he was yet hardly twenty-two, and so much in love, 
should thus eagerly feed himself with hopes of its ultimate success, and be willfully deaf to every argument which reason would have brought against the reality of the gay visions he cherished. Celestina, pitying and esteeming him, was very anxious to reduce this unhappy and fruitless prepossession to the bounds of friendship and esteem, and though she at this time thought of Willoughby with so much internal anguish that she never on other occasions willingly named him, yet she now took occasion sometimes to speak of him, and purposely laid her train of conversation in such a way with Mrs. Elphinstone, as gave Montague Thoreau to understand that her sentiments in regard to him, who had first possessed, and still was master of her heart, could never suffer any material change, or be transferred to another, even though she was sure that she was personally divided from him for ever. After some days travelling, with the languor of Mrs. Elphinstone and her extreme anxiety about her children, rendered tedious, the party arrived at York, and there it was determined to remain two days. Celestina, who had nobody to receive her at the end of her pilgrimage, was peculiar delight, was not very eager to finish it. Mrs. Elphinstone, seeing nothing but poverty and dependence before her, of which her mind, being enfeebled by grief, was little able to bear a nearer prospect, was yet less anxious. And Montague Thoreau cared not how long a journey lasted which gave him what he must at its termination lose, the happiness of being with, and of being useful to the mistress of his heart. When they arrived at York there was an appearance of snow. It fell with violence during the night, and by ten o'clock the next morning the north road was rendered impassable. The travellers were assured that in a day or two it would be sufficiently beat for them to proceed with safety, and as their original intention was to remain at least two days, the farther immaterial delay with which this circumstance threatened them gave to none of them any concern. The snow, however, continued to fall very heavily, and the cold became almost insupportably severe. The party were drawn round a good fire at the inn, and Mrs. Elphinstone had just put her children to bed, when an unusual clamour and bustle below attracted their attention. Horses were called for, and the loud voice was heard to say, "'If four are not sufficient, my master will have fourteen rather than be stopped a moment.' "'This is some matrimonial expedition,' cried Montague Thoreau, "'or why all this haste?' The idea, which the ladies allowed to be probable, excited some degree of curiosity, and when the waiters soon after came in to lay the cloth for supper, Montague could not forbear inquiring if the horses which were a short time before so eagerly called for were not for the accommodation of a young couple hastening into Scotland. The man replied that the gentleman was going into Scotland, and had been stopped by the snow about seven miles off, the horses he had to his chase being unable to draw him but that he understood he was quite alone, that the horses and men had been sent to his assistance, and that he was expected there presently. The man, who probably loved to hear himself talk, went on to inform them, though they now no longer felt any great degree of curiosity, that the gentleman's valet de chambeur and one of the postilions, who had come forward, who were warming themselves at the fire below, before they returned back as they were ordered, had declared that they were almost dead with cold, but as for that, sir, continued the waiter, he says that is, sir, the valet de chambre says, says he, my master, if once he's got a scheme in his head, tis not cold, no, nor water, nor fire neither, as will find it an easy matter to stop him. And then, says he, as for fatigue to his own self, says he, or danger, or anything of the like nature, or expense, though it cost him a hundred, ay, or a thousand pounds, 
Why, my master, says he, minds it no more than nothing. Tis all one to him. Yet to be sure, says he, he is a good master in the main, and no sneaker neither in money nor liquor, nor no other accommodation to servants. And pray, said Montague Thoreau, who is this courageous, bountiful, and accommodating gentleman? I did not think to ask his name, sir, replied the waiter, but I can know in a minute. He then, without waiting for an answer, ran downstairs, and returning almost instantly, said that the gentleman was Squire of Avasor of, da of Staffordshire. Vavasor, cried Celestina in a faint voice, and turning as pale as death. Good heaven! To what purpose can Vavasor be travelling in such haste towards Scotland? Vavasor, echoed Montague Thoreau, his countenance betraying all that passed in his heart. Vavasor! Ah, Mr. Mornay, it was to you he was undoubtedly going. Willoughby is returned, and he sends his friend to reclaim his betrothed wife. Sends his friend? Oh, no, no, answered Celestina with quickness. That cannot be. Were Willoughby returned, he would not send. Rather, it is some sad news he has to impart, and I must prepare myself for it. I must bear it, be what it may. The cruelest anxiety now took possession of both Celestina and Montague Thoreau. They both dreaded an explanation, though unable to bear the suspense. Thoreau went down to see what he could gather from the men. But Mr. Bavasor's servant was gone back to meet his master, and the postillion had only come with him from the last post-town. Celestina, in the meantime, now traversed the room, now went to the window, and now appeared to attend to the conjecture Mrs. Elphinstone offered, that perhaps this journey might in no respect relate to her, but might be owing to one of those sudden starts of caprice in which Vavasor was known to indulge himself. This state of suspense and conjecture, which is of all others least easy to be borne, did not last long, for in about a quarter of an hour the carriage, in which Vavasor himself was, arrived. Celestina now debated within herself whether she ought to send to him to inform him of her being on her way to England, or suffer him to proceed, whether she doubted not he was going, even to the Hebrides in search of her. This internal debate was, however, short. Her extreme solicitude to have news of Willoughby superseded every other thought, and whether the Vavasor was going to Scotland to announce her fate to her by the direction of Willoughby, or merely in consequence of some whim of his own, she knew that he, in all probability, could give her some intelligence of him whom she most wished to hear. Montague Thoreau, who trembled least in consequence of this interview, all the daydreams in which he had been indulging himself should at once be destroyed, would have represented to her some imaginary improprieties which his wish to find them raised in his mind. Celestina, however, had with all her candor and humility a decisive spirit, the effect of her great good sense, which, when she had once examined and determined on any subject, did not leave her open to the trifling perplexities of feeble and unimportant debate. She considered that even if Vavasor was going on some eccentric idea of his own to follow her into Scotland, it would be cruel and unjust to suffer him to pursue such a journey at such a season, and therefore steadily resisting all the representations of Montague Thoreau against it, she addressed to him the following note. Miss de Bournay presents her compliments to Mr. Vavasour, and having learned by accident that he is at this place, requests the favour of seeing him to-morrow morning to breakfast with Mrs. Elphinstone and with her at half-past nine. Montague Thoreau, being unable wholly to prevent, thought he could at least impede the delivery of this note till the next day, 
but celestina was too impatient to hear of willoughby to be blind to the artifice which montague was too much in love to manage very dexterously and therefore quitting the room herself she found one of the waiters who she enjoined to give the note to the gentleman who was just arrived as soon as he had done supper this was not perhaps very discreet but celestina thought much at the moment of willoughby and very little of vavasor and in her anxiety to hear news of the one she reflected not on the way in which it might be conveyed by the other who after a long and cold journey having finished his supper was not likely at least to be a clear and calm messenger and a moment's reflection would have convinced her that he was not a man who from motives of delicate forbearance and polite deference would put off the interview to the time she had named no sooner was the note from celestina delivered to vavasor than he ran upstairs with an impatience amounting almost to frenzy his eyes flashing fire and his countenance expressive of the violent emotions with which he was agitated he hardly noticed mrs elphinstone but casting a look of angry surprise at montague thoreau whom he immediately knew he approached celestina took her hand and eagerly kissing it told her in a hurried manner that he was hastening to scotland to give her intelligence of very great consequence and to deliver her a packet from willoughby from willoughby replied celestina so extremely affected by his abrupt entrance that she was ready to faint is he well is he returned to england no replied he without seeming sensible of the nature of her sufferings not returned to england or likely to return but is he married then said celestina interrupting him in a still more trembling voice not yet but i have letter for you which give it me cried she hardly able to breathe he had it not about him but ringing for his servant gave him the key of his portmanteau and bidding him bring a large sealed packet which he said he would find there the man immediately returned with it and celestina without speaking to vavasor hurried away with it in a breathless agitation mrs elphinstone alarmed at her looks following her in silence all this time montague thoreau had remained leaning against one of the piers with contracted brows and clasped hands watching the countenance of celestina while his own changed from pale to red from red again to pale he had always returned the dislike which vavasor had shown towards him as much as his nature could return dislike and this was increased by the abrupt and unfeeling manner in which vavasor had executed a commission that whether it brought to her welcome or unwelcome tidings demanded he thought more delicacy and more preparation when celestina and mrs elphinstone were gone he felt no inclination therefore to stay with vavasor who walked up and down the room as if expecting their return but was preparing to leave it when as he crossed to the door vavasor turning short towards him asked how he came to be at york with miss de mornay how i came sir replied montague thoreau with equal abruptness have you any right sir to inquire yes replied vavasor contemptuously i have a right to inquire into my actions sir interrupted thoreau surely not to inquire into those of miss de mornay sir i have a right well sir if she allows of that right to her you may then apply but you will be so good as to leave me at liberty to be at york or wherever else it is convenient to me to be not with her sir you must not not with miss de mornay be assured as for the rest pray understand that were it not for the circumstance of your being seen in company with her i should never recollect that such a person was in the world as mr montague thoreau thoreau though naturally of a gentle disposition 
was little disposed to bear the contemptuous arrogance of any man. He therefore answered with more quickness that it was an honour he could well dispense with to be thought of at all by such a man as Mr. Vavasour. The tone in which he spoke this, and the emphasis he laid on the word such a man, provoked the haughty and impetuous spirit of Vavasour, and words rose so high between them that Mrs. Elphinstone, who was only in the next room, came in, and extremely terrified at their violence, besought them to separate. Vavasour, whose passions were at all times too strong to suffer him to listen, either to reason from others or to his own, gave very little attention to her remonstrances. But Montague Thoreau, on seeing her extreme uneasiness, and on hearing the name of Celestina, became in a moment apparently calm. And assuring Mrs. Elphinstone that she had no reason to be alarmed, he addressed himself coolly to Vavasour, and said that if he had any business with him, he would be at his service in the morning. He then besought Mrs. Elphinstone to return to Celestina, and, taking her hand, led her out of the room, assuring her in a whisper that he would not return that evening to Vavasour, nor have any farther contention with him. "'Make yourself easy, therefore, my dear madam,' said he, "'and tell me, how is our lovely friend? What are the contents of a letter which required so extraordinary a messenger?' Mrs. Elphinstone answered, that Celestina had appeared in great emotion while she read the beginning of the letter, and then telling her that she should finish it in her own room, had left her, in increased agitation, she thought, but without tears. "'And shall you see her no more to-night?' inquired Montague Thoreau. "'I rather believe not,' replied Mrs. Elphinstone. "'And do you think,' said Thoreau, "'do you think, my dear madam, that the agitation, the emotion you remarked, was the effect of joy, of grief, of grief, of disappointment, of regret, I think,' answered she. "'I believe Celestina is now convinced,' that every probability of her becoming the wife of Mr. Willoughby is at an end for ever. Then, cried Montague Thoreau, unable to repress the violence of his feelings, oh, then there will be hope for me. There was something like the transports of frenzy in the manner in which he uttered this, and Mrs. Elphinstone was shocked at it. Be not too sanguine, Mr. Montague, said she. I do not believe that the affections of Miss de Mornay are to be easily or lightly transferred, but if they were... Think of the powerful claims upon them that are using against yours. Claims? What claims? cried he. Who shall dare to dispute with me in heart to which? Nay, nay, answered Mrs. Elphinstone. This is all frenzy and wildness. Do you not know that you have no claim, though I am willing to allow all your merit? And do you not see that Willoughby, in being compelled to resign her, recommends his friend Vavasor to her favour, and therefore sends him hither? Vavasour, cried he, recommend Vavasour to her, and with Celestina, who with all that dignified gentleness had a great deal of spirit with the proper consciousness of her own value, would she bear to be consigned, like a bale of merchandise to a friend, and to such a man as Vavasour? Impossible. He dare not think of it, but I wish he may, for her insulted pride will mitigate the pain of her disappointed love, and she will be mine." The charmer will be mine. The look, the manner in which this was uttered, increased the concern of Mrs. Elphinstone, who, from her own recent and severe sufferings, had learned to dread anything like romantic eccentricity. She laid her soft, cold hand on the burning hands of Montague Thoreau, as they were wildly clasped together. My dear sir, said she, in the gentlest accents, 
I owe you a thousand obligations for all the attention you showed me in my late calamitous situation. And ill, very ill, should I repay those obligations, if I did not try as a friend to mitigate these violent transports. Believe me, the heart of Celestina, fixed in her early life to one subject, is attached to that object with more than common firmness. Vavasor's frantic fondness, and your real merit, will in my opinion be equally indifferent to her, and I verily believe that if Willoughby marries another, as I conclude he will, Mr. Mornay will never marry at all. Montague Thoreau could not bear this. The idea of rivalry had been painful, but the pain was mitigated by his knowledge of her character, and the character of Vavasor, which, with all its avowed libertinism, he knew Celestina could not even tolerate, and certainly not approve. But the idea of her living only for Willoughby, even when Willoughby lived for another, was insupportable, and since he was unwilling to own it was possible, he would therefore have been ready to quarrel with anybody but Mrs. Elphinstone for supposing it probable. But, to every being who was unfortunate, and especially if that unfortunate being was a woman, the kind heart of Montague Thoreau overflowed with good will and sympathy. He therefore checked himself, and saying he could be impatient to hear of Mrs. de Mornay in the morning, he wished Mrs. Elphinstone a good night, and left her. End of Volume 3, Chapter 4 Recording by Amy McCracken